Today on episode number 209 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Asao Inouye shares about anti-racist writing assessment ecologies. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak. And this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. For today's episode, I'm grateful to Nick Hengen Fox from Portland Community College, who has been on the show previously, for introducing me to today's guest. Esau Inouye is Professor of Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences, the Director of the University Writing and the Writing Center, and the Program Chair of the 2018 Conference on College Composition and Communication. He's also been a member of the Executive Board of the Council of Writing Program Administrators, Among his many articles and chapters on writing, assessment, race, and racism, his article, Theorizing Failure in U.S. Writing Assessments in RTE, won the 2014 CWPA Outstanding Scholarship Award. His book, which we'll be talking about today, Anti-Racist Writing Assessment Ecologies, Teaching and Assessing for a Socially Just Future, won the 2017 NCTE-CCCC Outstanding Book Award for a monograph and the 2015 CWPA Outstanding Book Award. And I shall be earning an award here soon for reading lots of initials. (laughs) Additionally, which I'm very much looking forward to, he is completing a book on labor-based grading contracts as socially just writing assessment. Asao, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Glad to be here. We are tackling, you know, just an easy topic. And (laughs) after reading your (laughs) book and many of your articles, I told you in advance, I have about a thousand questions I'd like to ask you. But let's start out talking a little bit about racism. And could you talk and distinguish for us when we refer to individuals as racist or when we talk about racism in a different way? Yeah. And the way I like to talk about, or the way I talk about it in the book, and the way I talk about with teachers, um, racism, racism is really a set of structures that often are invisible to us because they seem so natural. So, so they're not, um, it's not about intention or about somebody's behavior necessarily um, because it's something that they want or believe. Something that we might call like something like prejudice. That's not the kind of racism um, we certainly could talk about that, but that's not the kind of racism that I'm really dealing with in the book and in really in trying to help teachers and my my own university as well. I will try to work through, figure out how do we combat, how do we eradicate, if you will, racism and the like. So we're Sorry. thinking of ourselves instead of just my intent as an individual, my choices, behaviors as an individual I want to be able to put on a new pair of lenses, which you do such a great job of giving us different lenses we can use, to be able to see this broader set of structures. 
Has this been helpful to you in the sense of then, I guess, having people be less defensive? Are there other ways that it's helpful and, and, or any ways that it, it sort of hinders then our ability to make the kinds of changes we should make as individuals? Well, I always like to start conversations about this, especially with teachers and such, and actually in classrooms as well, when I talk to students, because this is a, a topic in all of my writing classes that I, um, that I teach. I like to start with some ground rules about how we're going to go about talking and what we're, what's behind those words. So I think, first of all, one, one thing that's really important to understand about when we talk about racism or white supremacy, that it, there's an element of, in any group, no matter who you ch- get, like you randomly choose um, students or people together. There's a, in America, there'll be, there'll be certain groups of, or people in that group that will feel very uncomfortable with this topic. And it's okay to feel uncomfortable. In fact, if you feel uncomfortable by the mention or the discussion or trying to investigate, say, something like racism or someone's race as a designation, then that probably means it's a it's a healthy response in terms of thinking about how you might change or grow in that area, like understanding. Like, I think part of, of growing and maturing as, as a person is to find those places where you don't know something and you feel uncomfortable and then move out of that um, that discomfort towards a, some com- areas of comfort. But we don't want to, so in other words, we don't want to dwell in discomfort, but we should dwell in, uh, long enough to be able to figure out like, what am I really, why am I feeling this? And what is it, what are my assumptions? And how did I get those assumptions? So that's, it's those last two parts that, the last two questions that I really want us to, in my classes and with, with, uh, with colleagues, I want to try to investigate. And the best way to investigate that is by first having language for the structures around us that, that affect us, that make us do certain things. So yes, so there's, so there's ground rules for it. And, uh, and it's first understanding there's language uh, that we need to have that help us see things in a different way. And then we work from that discomfort, knowing that we are trying to be compassionate with one another. One of the words that struck me, I didn't even have to go past the title of your book. (laughs) It was an interesting word choice. And I wanted to learn more about ecology. I would have expected a different word, you know, that in my universe of reading about teaching, I would have thought maybe pedagogy or maybe teaching philosophy. Tell me more about the use of the word ecology and how that should inform our thinking about your work. Yeah, so what I hope comes through this book and in really most of my work, because my work is rooted while it's in the, in the fields of, of rhetoric and composition, that I really am focused on writing assessment and racism studies. So when I think about ecologies, I don't think about the, the assessment itself, like, or rather when I think about an assessment, I don't think about the portfolio or the essay or the point system. I think about, I think in much larger terms. And I had to come to this over a decade or so of my thinking. It started with looking at some of the literature on technology, assessment as technology. And this came out of large scale assessment discussions and validity studies. And then I, I just moved those. I, all I saw were applications to the classroom, right? So these are talking about placements and SATs and things like that. But I was really thinking, what a, this is a lot of, this has a lot of, of things to offer a writing teacher or any teacher who's, who always is managing this technology of assessment, whatever that looks like in their classroom, be it points or letters or checks and minuses or whatever. And so it be, after talking with some folks in the field and getting some really good ideas and some good feedback on this from some initial work that I had done around assessment as technology, I realized it was much more organic 
in which I was really thinking or should be thinking. And that that's where ecology came from. And I like the research um, around ecologies as complex systems that morph in each element. It's more than its, its parts. It's more than the sum of its parts, which I think is a very adequate way to describe a classroom, right? We can teach the same class in two different hours of the day and with the same exact lesson plan or the same thing and get two very different results. And that's because these are very complex systems that we can do almost exactly the same thing or try to. And we, and we one, aren't doing exactly the same thing. And it's not the same ecology because there are different people involved. It's different time of day, different place and so forth. So to me, ecology helps me keep things very fluid and helps me understand that much larger set of things that, we're, that we're, I'm trying to keep in mind when I design or when I try to understand um, assessment and what its effects are on students. I really think it's a beautiful choice of words. And I don't know if this is taking it too far, but it it reminds me of that in ecologies, it's very hard to see cause and effect because as you said, everything is interdependent. And I think as I, I specifically, as we think about grading, you know, go around and if you're early and you haven't done very much grading, you might go around and talk to different people about how they address certain topics. But it's kind of a dangerous game to do that if you haven't thought through your own teaching ecology. I mean, because of these things all are interdependent and that our actions or choices in one area wouldn't necessarily be uh, as simple as that that will drive better writing or that will create more discipline or what have you. Yeah, I think that, that, that term or that idea, thinking about assessment as an ecology, helped me get past the cause and effect thing. That is, and, and that was really, it, was, it started for me as, as, as a teacher, it started out as relieving the guilt of not accomplishing what I thought I tried to design into my class mm. when it would, might work a little bit here, but not so much the next day or the next year. And I think we need to, we certainly need to be responsible for what we do in the classroom as teachers. At the same time, classrooms are ecologies that are very complex. I know you have lots of ideas for us on how we can do better, but let's define the problem a little bit more. In in what ways is racism embedded? And by racism, as a reminder to people, we're talking about the systems and structures that are inherently racist. How is that embedded into how most of us assess students' work or how most of us consider grading? In a number of ways. We all, we all come from and work in hegemonic systems, systems that are established and have particular biases or um, determined effects. So that means that if you got to where you are as a teacher today, you came out of white supremacist systems. You have those biases, even if your politics and your desires and your impulses are to not be that. And that I think, and I don't think that anyone is a bad person. I'm saying that what we what we have are bad systems, right? So that one of the things that I uh, that I focus on a lot now is white language supremacy, which comes out of that dominant code, that dominant standardized edited American English, which we end up using as a default to say this is the standard. Students have to meet this. It becomes the standard in the classroom by which we give grades or assign credit to writing and communication practices. And that perpetuates the racism that I, that I started um, trying to think about in this book and that I continue to think about in terms of white language supremacy in classrooms, in society at large. So it is the structures that create that, those, those language, that language and, and the structures that train teachers and prospective teachers 
to become teachers and then to uh, perpetuate um, those. And in some ways, we're in it. Many of us were in. Um, uh, we're painted. We painted ourselves into, into a corner. Those are the dispositions that we have <laughs> to to do that. So, you, so what other standards are there? Well, I'm I'm saying that's the that's the question we ask. That not to find a new standard, but to see the variety of standards that we have. To see, oh, there's not one standard. There's many standards that, that we have, and understanding them sitting next to each other in a classroom is perhaps a more anti-racist way to go about thinking about feedback in classrooms and about how assessment, what kinds of judgments assessments circulate in the classroom. So for me, it's it's often starts with that standard and how do we get past using a standard against students? And do we want to help our students then become more familiar with all the different kinds of standards there are? I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking about Having students read academic journals, because if you want to get published in an academic journal, then you're probably going to need to write, learn to write that way, or learning how to write in more of a web-friendly blogger type of voice. I mean, that, that, is that part of it, is helping to see that there is no one right way to write? Yeah, there, I mean, there are certainly disciplinary differences, and we can talk about those or we can talk about cultural and linguistic differences that come from groups of people. The bottom line is language moves with people. If people aren't using a language, then it's not going to change and evolve, right? And it's not going to even exist. And so knowing this simple fact helps us understand why in academia, certain um, folks in humanities or in religious studies or in history or in engineering write the way they do and communicate the way they do. And I don't know if I want to necessarily purposefully inflict one kind onto all of my students. I know the statistics nationally. 90% of my students will not be academics. That's not the kind of communication um, a practice they need to work on. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they should be, right? I think they should be all the wonderful different things that we have in the world um, already. So I think it's important to investigate initially, and I do this in all my classes, especially that first year writing class, to find out exactly what are your goals for communicating. And, what, and, and maybe it is to learn the dominant code. Maybe, they, maybe there's a student that doesn't want to be a graduate student or they, they aspire that they want to try this out. This is, college is what that's about. So could we um, experience other codes, other um, kinds of Englishes in the classroom? Absolutely, absolutely. But perhaps more importantly, it might be first um, uh, prudent for us to investigate our own dispositions and mm -hmm. habitus our own ways with language, and then try to see how they match up to a dominant code that we might see in a published text that's you know uh, pretty archetypal, or my own text, me as the teacher who, has, who takes on much of that dominant code. But in an atmosphere or in an ecology that doesn't um, punish a student for not mimicking the dominant code. Now, that's not to say that learning the dominant code isn't an option for students if that is their choice in this atmosphere to do the learning and to do the thinking they want. Absolutely. But they really need to know the real choice, I think, that is, and what the consequences of all those choices are. And there's lots of consequences, especially for students of color, multilingual students, students from different cultures than, uh, than the mainstream culture that we, that, that in which the dominant code comes out of, that standard um, English. One of the things that you wrote about was that some of the ways that we're gauging our students' writing is really, a, well, and, and, it, and especially just this, this act of judgment that it is racism in disguise. And you wrote, we call it laziness, personal choices, or just the way things are. 
And I, I guess the laziness really struck me. And actually, they all really strike me a lot. It's, it, it really does seem to come down to, you know, wanting to place that label of you don't write correctly. <laughs> and you don't write correctly in this way as you don't write like a white person. <laughs> yeah, I like to talk to my students about First, we'll get some examples of past kinds of feedback, not the actual feedback, but kinds of feedback they've gotten on their writing in school, Mm -hmm. like in high school or in college. Then I ask them, what exactly is that teacher looking for? Like, let's maybe they had a rubric, maybe they had a set of expectations for them, but but what are they really looking for? And my argument is most teachers, if if they've not thought about their practices of judgment very carefully, then what they're really looking for is themselves. They're looking for some version of themselves because that's what they know. Just like when we assign personal experience essays or we ask students to write from their own experience that we're saying, you know yourself, that's your strong suit right from that. I say most teachers, if they've not been trained to think about how to do judgment, (laughs) how to do assessment in a classroom, then they're going to work from what their strongest suit is naturally, which is I know what I what I know it when I see it. I know good writing when I see it because I can understand it and it's clear to me, but we should always be adding to me, to everything, all of our judgments. This was clear to me. This was unclear to me. And this is preferable to me, but it may or may not be. Certainly there are patterns in groups, discipline-wise, and in terms of cultural groups and racial groups, but I'm talking about those patterns in a, in a sort of individualized way. So I, I know that my initial training when I started as a, as a writing teacher didn't give me any training in assessment or judgment. How does it work? What does it, what does the brain do when it makes judgments? When I read text, exactly what is happening and why do I get to where I get? (laughs) And that's really an important set of of questions that a teacher can ask all on their own with their students. I want to ask those questions with my students. So I like to do, I like to bring in a little heuristic around the habits of white discourse in my class. And this is a, hu- a heuristic that my students and I over a couple of years created by looking at um, the literature on whiteness and some rhetorical literature. And then we built this and we uh, apply it as a sort of rubric, if you will, or a heuristic to help us read. It gives us language and a lens to read stuff, our own judgments, read my judgments on their papers, read the way in which a text has been written, all those things. And then pose some questions about that, about what we're noticing in those around these habits that tend to be the habits of white discourse. What we find are pretty, is pretty uniform, and we find that no matter who you are, where you come from, if you're in the university, you hold some of these habits, no matter what your skin color is or where you come from. You, because if you didn't, you wouldn't be able to be here. What are That's some of the what, habits? Well, uh, so the first one, which I think is a really overarching habit, it's, the, it's a, uh, a, a naturalized orientation to the world that says what is reachable for me is reachable for anyone. Mm. So, so it's, it's, um, and it's a very visual and a very sort of proximity metaphor, but it comes out in a lot of ways um, in the judgment of, of essays. It's like saying this, this, this sentence, your thesis isn't clear. It's not stated clearly. When I think, I doubt any serious student would write a sentence, especially a thesis sentence that they didn't think was clear to them at least initially. There might be ways to tweak it, but it's not that they said, I'm going to write an unclear sentence. I'm going to write an unclear uh, pieces. No, they probably wrote a clear one to them, but this other reader, this teacher or judge doesn't find it clear. And that the clarity, what needs, how that neat sentence needs to change for that reader seems very reachable 
to them. Mm. And and this can also be said for um, when we step out of the classroom just a little bit and think about the pattern, the history of a student, of the good student, right? The one who gets good grades, the one who does can match the code. What likely has happened is that most of that history along the way, those good grades, those A's and those B pluses or whatever the good grades are, have always been within reach. Mm-hmm. And there's reasons why they've been in reach. They happen to fit the dispositions, the other dispositions that match the codes they've been looking for, that, that their teachers have been looking for. So of course, they're, they would come into a class and go, this is very easy. I can do this. So in a class that, ba- like in my courses that are based on how much labor you do, that's how we determine the grade, the final course grade. These kinds of students often voice resistances in the beginning because it sounds like, because it, and this is true, because they're quite astute this way, that they have to do more work now than they, they previously had. Like all they had to do was do this, you know, the, 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 the 24 hour uh, essay, right? Or 24 hours before they write, bang out the essay because they can, because they, they've always been rewarded for the same stuff because it's been in reach and, and then they're done. Um, so they don't have to give a lot of thought. But in my class, there is labor, we map, we, we map it by, by minute and by t- words written and by um, tasks done. And that, they're gonna clearly see, I can't write the way I've been writing before. And I'm saying, that's good for everybody. Mm-hmm. What's good for, for this group of students is good for this group of students. It doesn't matter where you are on any sort of illusory scale. What matters is that the engine of, of learning is labor. It's doing work. So. The most I could ask, the most and least I can ask of students is their time. And that oh, that equates oftentimes very closely to labor. And that's the center of, of for me, I'm the center of an anti-racist um, writing assessment ecology. It's figuring out how to get away from that standard. And in my case, move towards using labor in ways that will help us get a, get the institutional mandated course grade. If I could get away with no grades, I could. I would get away. I would. I would not do grades at all. But I can't just yet. Mm. <laughs> so I have to have grades. Could you talk a little bit about a student? It could be fictitious or one that you just recall that had different goals than one might normally have in their writing, and then what this labor-based contract looked like in their case, and and maybe what a week might look like or a couple of weeks. Yeah. I've had students who have, again, I'm, while I'm thinking of one in particular, this really is a version of several other students. I've had students who've really, once we've looked at some alternative discourses, ones that are other kinds of Englishes that aren't the standardized one that you would expect to find in a writing class as the model that we're reading together and talking about. In this case, it happened to be an African-American student, and we were looking at an African-American text written in African-American English, and the writer was making an academic argument but doing it in African-American English and really responding to essentially standards, right? So this, uh, this really was uh, poignant for this student, for my students, um, like seeing this and thinking about, oh, I don't have to write this way. So while he had goals in the beginning that he had expressed, I want to be able to do this and this and this all around academic incorporating tech, you know, uh, research and, and te- sources into, into his texts and being more confident in his writing and caring more about his writing. He expressed to us, the class, on many occasions how, in, especially in high school, he just couldn't care about his writing in English classes because of, these sta- the, of what they wanted him to do. It was difficult for him to do that. And I see why. He wasn't rewarded. Why would you want to, what, what person in their right mind would want to keep doing an activity that they never are rewarded for? <laughs> or that they're, and, and that they're often punished for. 
Nobody wants to do that. There's a self-preservation there that is really important for your own psyche. Of course, you try to avoid it or you create all these mechanisms in your in yourself and your practice to avoid that that punishment. Um, so once he saw this and saw this validated in a printed text by a professor who's an African-American professor who's doing this African, African-American English in his academic way and winning the argument, right? He started his, – his work started to change. He didn't change his expressed goals. But to me, it's clear that he was changing them along the way. They were organically changing. And our classroom allowed him to change those goals organically along the way because our goals mostly for the class itself to to get a course grade, to progress in the course, were based around labor. He just changed his practices within his labor Mm -hmm. to do – to write in slightly different ways to say, I think I'm okay with writing this way. I'm not going to be afraid to do this. I can do this. So he would have these interesting defense mechanisms. And I think he would say this about his own writing. He would say, I'm going to, I'll get up at 5 a.m. and I'll do the work then. And our class was at 8 a.m. <laughs> okay. So so now he would do the work, but of course, it, it's very short time. doesn't give him a lot of time to think. And he's got to get to bed early if he's going to get up at 5 o'clock and do this work. So you can see how this is a defense mechanism because he just it's a painful thing to sit down and try to do some writing or do some reading. And it's not painful because it was necessarily hard for him. It was painful because it was it's difficult to get out of that nosedive when when the assessment ecologies that you have experienced have only hurt you. Even when you're in a good one, one that doesn't do that same, those same practices, it's difficult to see it. I know this firsthand from my own experience as a student um, in public schools in, in Las Vegas and then in college in Oregon. That was much of my experience earlier. I don't, uh, and I'm only blessed with a disposition that I love language. So what would his labor look like then if, it, if not waking up at five to have it done by eight? What, tell me yes. about his a week in his in his. Well, it's a slow process. So much of his labor was still done in the in the mornings. However, there was some change in how and when at what time of day. That's that was the biggest change was he, he sprinkled his his time more often throughout the day. And he ate when he uh, did his work. He found that eating something while he read or was doing writing, it helped. It gave him some I don't know. I don't know if it was that he was not getting regular meals, or if it was just that he wasn't thinking about. He was too busy in his head um, when he, uh, you know, too busy thinking. Ah, oh, I got to do this writing. I got to. But instead, he sort of took care of the needs of the body, if you will. But that was um, that was the main. The most of his changes were sub were substantive, or was the subject being engaged with the writing more so. So he made his hours that he did, did while they were probably, they, have been, they were a little bit more, about 50% more, they were more meaningful to him. And I think that's a big, that is a big step. When none of his labors, I would say, at least from his opening narrative to us about his writing in English classes, none of them were rewarding. He mm-hmm. consciously tried to avoid it. Yes. A problematic word when talking about students' grades is this idea of earning a grade. And do you still use that language to say, like, how would I earn an A in your class? Or is there another word that you use to describe the labor I'm going to go through to get to that A? Yeah, I don't use earn. I used to but when I grade, when I when I put grades on papers and I assign points and stuff and I had very elaborate systems. But of course, as you might guess, I found problems with that in my and I mean, deep, deep problems that I didn't justify ethically anymore. I don't use the language of earning because 
it makes it sound like most of the work of assessment, that is the way that grade is produced on a paper, comes from the student. When I think actually it's more of like a, a 30, 30, 30 bum thing. A third of, the, um, of that grade is produced by what the, what the writer ends up putting on the paper. If we're talking about an essay, a third of it comes from the context in the classroom, that ecology that in which whatever has happened around that paper, whether it was scaffolding to the paper or whether it was other peer feedback or whatever it was, or something else in the student's life that might affect what, what's on the paper or what's in the teacher's life. For instance, if I'm really, really tired and I have a stack of papers to read, I'm probably not going to be as good of a, of, a, of a grader or an evaluator as I would if I was fully rested and, and, and well-fed and so forth. And those, we can't deny our bodies. We are embodied um, teachers and students. So a third of that comes from that context on both ends. And then a third of it comes from what, the dispositions of the teacher. So really, most of, of the way that which that grade is produced is not earned per se. It's given. So I moved from the language of earning to the language of giving which in one sense feels a little nicer to me. I know that some people don't think that because they think, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not determining your grade. And wait, no, you are. That's how judgment works. You decide the grade. But in my labor-based classrooms, it's, not, it's more about the grade we agree upon. If you do this labor and we agree upon that, we negotiate those terms in the first couple of weeks of class, then that, I assign that grade. So I'm just saying this is the grade I assign. It's, and it's all on a little table in our co- a labor-based grading contract. So it's more mine, my language has moved more towards language around labor and assigning it and negotiating um, the terms of that assignment. So I'm more of an administrator of a contract than anything else. You talk about grading as being a way of promoting social justice and equality. And we've defined sort of the problem with racism, the problem with our standard approaches to grading and assessment. And you've introduced us to labor-based grading contracts. And for people who want to learn more, I'll have plenty of follow-up articles and links to your work in the show notes. But what, what are some other ways we might consider using the process of assessment to promote greater social justice? In the classroom, I think, Part of fairness, if we're gonna, if we step out of the language of social justice and anti-racism and, and use an, an equivalent, partially equivalent term, fairness, if we wanna have fair systems, fair to everybody, I think what's, what's really, really important to that is participation. So if we think about all the systems that judge and assess us, that make decisions about us as people in, in our lives, the ones that seem the most fair to, a, to an individual are the ones that, that an individual has had some say in or some way to give input in the process in which that their decision was made or in the values or expectations that, that, that went into making the decisions by some group or some person or, or making the decision themselves. So I think um, students have to be involved in the assessment ecology always, whether that means, and in my, in my, in my classrooms, we, we negotiate, we develop together and negotiate all rubrics that you that are used to just determine, like, what do we want to do in this assignment? We determine the flow of the labor constantly. So if I'm assigning too much labor, we negotiate that. Because, like, I, you know, who knows? One quarter, um, for instance, I had a class where everybody worked almost full time. And 
when I, I was assigning, I signed quite a bit of stuff on the weekends and that was becoming problematic for us. <laughs> they, they were working all week and they just didn't have enough time to get stuff done. So we changed the due dates on the, the reoccurring assignments and we changed the uh, amount of hours of labor that I was expecting each week in that class as a response to their own reflections and their, um, and our discussions in class around that. So they need, students need to be involved in that ecology quite intimately and they need to be able to negotiate the terms of the very important thing that all of them are there for in many ways, even though it's not really the thing that they're there for. And that's that course grade. So we negotiate our grading contract. That's how we determine the course grade. And they have to feel good about it. And then we get to renegotiate it at midpoint. So we look at it again at midpoint and say, is this still fair? And we reflect on it, think about it. And then if we need to change any details or redefine some things, we do that. And I'd say about 70% of the time we do adjust um, the contracts a little bit each quarter. I'm going to read just a little bit from page 24 from your book and then see if you want to comment and then we'll need to go on to the recommendation segment. This is a quote yeah. again from page 24. Any denial of racism in our writing assessments is a white illusion. It upholds a white hegemonic set of power relations that is the status quo. It's the imagination of those too invested in white racial habits, regardless of their racial affiliation. And this is the part I mostly wanted to get to, um, but not out of context. Hell, I denied it when I was younger, I had to, it would have eaten me alive. And I likely would not have been able to do what I do today if I hadn't. Yeah, if I knew what I knew now. Well, what I'm referring to there is my own history in schools around my the judgment of my language. So I grew up in North Las Vegas, which was uh, African-American ghetto. It was a, a, a separate city from Vegas that was created by redlining practices um, in Vegas, where hotels and, and businesses didn't want African-Americans living in Ve Las Vegas proper. So they, they basically moved them to this area that at the time was outside of Vegas, but now it's kind of swallowed everything up. But it's, it, is, it has its own, I think, mayor and, and, and fire department and police and everything. It's North Las Vegas. But there, in poor schools, in growing up in um, speaking and using African-American English primarily, initially, of course, I'm not rewarded for that in school. And I took on this sense that I, you know, when, you're, when you live in the ghetto and you're poor and, you, and, you, and at seven, you know how much money your mom makes because you know when it runs out in the month. When you know that at seven and you have to know that, you find all kinds of ways and justifications for getting the hell out of the ghetto. Um, I, and, and staying out. It wasn't until deep into my 30s that I released a lot of the burden of feeling like tomorrow I can slip right back there. I could be poor, mm. like, like grinding poor like we were when I was younger. And part of that made me feel that I needed to take on, I needed to be white. I thought, I thought that this was the thing. I wouldn't have said white exactly. Maybe in my private moments alone I would. But in school, I would have said, I need to know this standard. I need to be, need to do it this way. I need to get the good grades. I need to chase after this. I need to be just like my teachers. And I think that that, because of that, I lost some things. I lost a lot of the kind of ways in which I use, use language then. I didn't lose all of it really, but, but a lot of it. And I think I didn't understand and I couldn't understand what schools and what grading systems were really doing to me and what, how they made me, in, made me into a grade chaser and care about grades, even though I would turn around and say, I, I don't care about what my, my teacher thinks about my writing, because I knew it was just a defense mechanism. I knew that what I was going to get. So that was the, that reference I had, because it was, I was referring to sort of 
um, defense mechanisms that I had growing up. Growing up at a particular time, in a particular place, I think I was lucky that I had a twin brother whom I've always loved and who's always loved me. I remember many times growing up thinking out loud to my brother, it is us against the world. Mm-hmm. And that's not, a, that's not the motto of my sons. My sons mm-hmm. now, who are, who are now you know, 20 and 17, do not have that motto. They don't need to have it. They're born with, with more privilege and more comfort than I ever was. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but I also think that in many ways, the irony, the contradiction here is if I didn't have those circumstances, if I didn't have that language that I had early on, I wouldn't have been so compelled to change it and do, and I wouldn't probably have been able to move up in the educational ladders that I did. It was, in my, in my case, the keys to the kingdom. At the same time, I will say that other folks who don't share as many privileges that I, that I have. I may have spoken African-American English, but I was not African-American. <laughs> so there's a big difference, <laughs> um, I think. And so therefore, that was a, a, a more of a key to the kingdom than my African-American friends or my Latino or Latina friends, that, it, it, that those keys would not work nearly as many doors, yeah. I think, or, or as easily. So that, um, that's something I have to, that's the stuff I got to always be investigating and be interrogating. Like, I have some privileges too, as much as I have had some struggles and I have, and I don't have some white skin privilege, but I have other privileges yeah. that are related to that. Hmm. Oh, we could keep doing this, but (laughs) unfortunately, we have to try to stick to people's commute time. So I'm going to move on to the recommendation. Thank you so much for sharing that part of your story. It was was very powerful. Well, the recommendation I have for today is actually a book I finished a couple months ago, but I thought it was worth mentioning on the show. And it's called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. And it's by Timothy Snyder. And I'm just going to read the description from the book because it does a better job than I will. The founding fathers tried to protect us from the threat they knew, that tyranny that overcame ancient democracy. Today, our political order faces new threats, not unlike the totalitarianism of the 20th century. We are no wiser than the Europeans who saw democracy yield to fascism, Nazism or communism, one advantage is that we might learn from their experience. This is a very short read. I think it's about 120 pages. And he just goes through and takes history and some of the what should have been warning signs for us being on our way toward having democracy at risk. And one of the things he talks about is that we and I I certainly felt this in my own paradigm, that we tend to have this feeling that we're just always moving in the direction of democracy, that yeah, we might have a step back or two, but we're just always moving in that direction. And that that's a very dangerous paradigm for us to have that is not an inevitable course of action. And it was a deep read. I'll tell you, it challenged me a lot. It was not I was not just completely entertained (laughs) as I flipped every page, I had to think very hard and really try to absorb it. But it was an important read. And it's also short. So we make our brains work (laughs) a little bit harder. And then we can take a deep breath and be more informed by history. He talks a lot about just the importance of knowing history, and especially for young people today, that just being so important. Um, I, I keep talking about that what we're experiencing today is not normal. And yet I don't think I probably tie it back as much to history as I really could. And his book would be a great source for anyone trying to do that better. And I get to pass it over to you now to make a recommendation or two. 
Yeah, I can make two recommendations. Um, one is a book series, which is really a, s- a series of novellas that I recently read and found and just really enjoyed in a pretty fast reads. And the other is maybe a, a suggestion about a, a kind of daily practice. So the, the novellas that um, I recently read are from Nnedi Okorafor, and they're the Binti series. Binti is the um, female protagonist um, that runs through all three of the novels or novellas. And this is a sort of a speculative fiction sci-fi kind of series. And she, it's just a, if you like, what I like about this is that the, the, the central character is an interesting, strong, and deeply flawed, but also beautifully painted female hero, right? Um, and, and unlikely in many ways. And it's also about her own coming to understand herself as this tribal African intergalactic university student. So it's fascinating that way. <laughs> so in the first the first novella um, is her journey to this intergalactic university, and the, uh, the next one is her going home and so forth. So it's a really interesting, um, and it has a lot when I uh, in, in discussion with with others who've read it, read the series, so many interesting parallels come out in terms of how, especially students of color or multilingual students experience the university life um, today. The other thing I'll suggest, that one was kind of fun, but it's also somewhat intellectual. This one is maybe something for good living, I guess. This is what I found. It's just a very short, small practice. Pause and notice what you do. (laughs) That's it. And I mean a three-second pause. What I'm getting at is I think we do better in our lives when we can enjoy what we do as we do it and not always run after the goal. It's great to win the race. But winning the race and standing on the podium is literally two, two minutes. Most of your experiences is the experience of running the race and, and, and training for it. And that's most of it. So enjoy the process. So like when I think about writing books or when I think about doing research projects or when I think about teaching a class or when I think about preparing for a class, I often will pause and think, isn't it great that I get to do this? Like this thing right here. I have time and Get to do this, I can think. I get to read this person's writing. They wrote this for me, for me to read and, and give them some feedback. It sounds very, you know, goofy and simple, but it's really a mindful practice that I think is so important because we're too. I think we're often very busy, um, especially in academia, and we don't take enough time to just pause for three seconds. And I mean, frequently, <laughs> like like maybe once every two hours, you know, in the day and or hour, and go, oh, I'm doing this thing right now. Okay, I'm doing this thing. That's good. That's mm. good to be do, to do this thing. So that's it. Oh, I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for those recommendations yeah. and also for coming on the show and talking to us about your work. And there's so much more I feel like we could talk about. So maybe this is my nudge to say, would you come back again and, and talk some more? <laughs> sure. It has been a lot of fun. Thank I, you for inviting me. I know you have another book coming out in the future too. So maybe we can get you back to talk about that one as well. Yes, for sure. Thanks once again to Asao Inoy for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you'd like to get to the show notes for today's episode, you can navigate over to teachinginhighered.com slash 209 
Or if you don't want to have to remember to do that every time, you can get them right in your inbox once a week, along with an article that I write about teaching or productivity. You can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and for all the work that you do to continue to become more effective at facilitating learning. I'll see you next time. Thank you.